If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Thank you very much, Joe. And uh, good morning, everybody. Well, uh, as Andy said, uh, this week we're coming to the concluding verses of Paul's letter to Timothy. And as we do, it's important, as I said last week, to keep in mind that this is not a roundup of a few things he wanted to kind of squeeze in before the end, but this really is the conclusion. So we must not picture Paul at the end of chapter 5, sort of finishing his main business, and he's about to sign off and let the ink dry, and then he suddenly remembers a few extra things he needs to say. So he dips his pen in the ink one more time and kind of scribbles a quick PS to Timothy about avoiding greed and being generous and that kind of thing. No, this final section actually is the business end of the letter. This is where he's been coming to all along. This is actually the reason he wrote. In fact, we're going to see this week and next that this is the explanation of everything that he's been on about so far. So if we think this is a kind of a, a final PS or a few final thoughts, we will have not understood the letter at all. Now, why is this the case? Well, one clue that this is the case is the overall structure of the letter. So as we come to the end of the letter, notice how Paul returns us to the themes that he began the letter with. So take, for example, that uh, false teaching idea in verse 3. Uh, there are only two occurrences in the whole of the New Testament of the word behind that, false teaching, literally different teaching. And that's 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, stay in Ephesus and command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. And then 1 Timothy 6 verse 3, if anyone teaches false doctrines. So two times in the whole New Testament, you get that word, different doctrines, beginning 1 verse 3, end 6 verse 3. And so here are the bookends of the letter, false teaching. And then in between those bookends, right in the middle, bang in the middle, 4, 1 to 5, he comes back to the false teaching using different language. So beginning, middle, and end, this is what this letter is about. False teaching is his theme. But you may remember that the theme of false teaching is connected 
to a second great concern of the book. This is one we thought about last week in particular, this terrible spiritual warfare that is raging around the Christian churches. So in 4 verse 1, he names the false teaching, which has entered the church by the very ordinary means of human beings teaching error, and he names it, doesn't he, 4 verse 1, as being taught by deceiving spirits. And he says this false teaching is actually taught by demons. So he links those two things together. So behind the false teaching, which is very human, very ordinary, very prosaic, is actually the invisible, satanic enemy of God who are raging against the churches. Well, what do they want? Uh, What is their game plan? It's always helpful to know, isn't it? What does the enemy want to achieve? Well, very simply, to destroy the faith of God's people and to destroy the witness of the church that we thought about earlier in that discussion. Now, this spiritual warfare, I think, has been a surprise to us as we've studied this letter. Um, It's easy to miss as you kind of skim through the letter. But just notice how often Paul returns to this danger. Have a look. Just flip back with me, if you would. At 1 verse 6, he says, Some have wandered away from a pure heart and good conscience in seer faith and turned to meaningless talk. So there's somebody losing the battle. Or look at 1 verse 19, where he says, Some have rejected faith and a good conscience and so have shipwrecked their faith. There's somebody losing the battle. 3 verse 7. 3 verse 7, he says, an overseer must have a good reputation with outsiders so he will not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. There's a danger, a trap of the devil. 4 verse 1, some will abandon the faith. 5 15, some young women have turned away to follow Satan. 6 verse 10, our passage, some have wandered away from the faith. So can you get that sense of real danger, a spiritual battle, invisible enemies, and the particular danger, men and women wandering away from the faith, Christian people not making it to the end. This is what is on Paul's mind in the letter, survival in the great war of life, the preservation of God's people and witness, salvation. And just look with me how he remains on this theme He remains on this theme right to the very end of the letter. Just look ahead to next week's passage and the last two sentences of the letter, 6 verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. So from 1 verse 3 all the way around to 6 verse 20, beginning, middle, and end, Paul's great concern is becoming clear, isn't it? It is to warn Timothy and the church about the spiritual warfare that is raging all around them that is taking the form of the battle for truth, the witness of the church, and the souls of men and women. Now, I don't know if you know uh, Tolkien's uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, but this reminds me of a a great scene. For those of you who... Uh, care about these things. It's in the village of Bree in the Prancing Pony. And the hobbits have just had their first encounter with the Black Riders. And they're, they're, they're pretty scared. They're pretty terrified. They're hide, hiding under trees. The Black Riders are pretty horrendous. We already know that. But Aragorn 
who knows more about the Black Riders than the Hobbits do, he finds them in the Prancing Pony, and he says, are you frightened, Mr. Baggins? And Frodo says, yes. Why, I mean, why wouldn't you be frightened? These things are horrid. And Aragorn says, well, you are not nearly frightened enough. Because he knows what they're like. He knows the enemy. And this is Paul's point in 1 Timothy. Christian, the church in Ephesus, even Timothy, you are not nearly frightened enough. You are nowhere near as safe as you think. The enemy, who on the face of it just looks like a nice kind of human teacher, looks like me, standing in a pulpit, respectable, you know, behind that is an enemy more vicious than you can imagine. You are not nearly frightened enough, Timothy, church in Ephesus, Christian person. And if you don't agree with that, then that is the proof that you are vulnerable. Because as the Apostle Peter says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour your enemy. So, we're coming to the end of the letter, we're getting to grips with it, and everything Paul has said is connected to this. Everything, he said, hangs from those hooks. So think back over the letter, prayer, men, women, leaders, family, work. It's all been deadly serious because there is an enemy who wants to destroy our church. There is an enemy who wants to drag each of us to hell. It's a matter of life and death, eternity is at stake. And if you're not a believer this morning, if you're not a convinced Christian, welcome to our church. We're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're listening to this. But I want you to know this. I want to make this very, very clear for anybody who's here this morning, who is kind of weighing up whether to follow Jesus, or anybody who's kind of having doubts about that. Is it worth it? I want you to know this, that as soon as you join arms with Jesus, from that moment on, for the rest of your life, you have made an implacable enemy of the devil. See, at the, at the moment, the devil is, is not particularly, don't take this the wrong way, but he's not particularly interested in you, in a sense. As long as you go on this path of not following Jesus, he's okay. You join hands with Jesus, and for the rest of your life, for the rest of your life, you have made an implacable, powerful enemy who can actually make your life miserable. So be warned, life from that moment on will be a fight to the death. Now you might think, well, I'm, I'm putting you off here. But in the final analysis, whose side would you, would you rather be on? Well, we'll come back to that right at the end. Well, there's Paul's theme then. But as we come to chapter 6, there is a, a sting in the tail in the letter. There's a surprise that it's been waiting for us. So I wonder if you notice, as Joe read, that it's, it's only now that Paul really reveals what is the particular danger for this church. We've got clear on the twin enemies of false teaching in the satanic realm, but what is the particular weapon they're using? What is the particular bait, for want of a better word, that they are using against these Christians? Well, it turns out, and here's the surprise, it turns out it's all been about money. Have a look at verse 5. False teachers are those who think godliness is a means to financial gain. Verse 10, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith 
and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's all been about money. I don't know if that takes you by surprise. I think it does. It's a little bit like when you get to the end of a murder mystery and the great detective reveals the culprit, Miss Marple Poirot. You get that kind of moment of revelation and you're surprised it's, it's not who you thought it was. We thought this was all about religion. I mean, what about those ascetics in chapter 4 who deny themselves worldly pleasure? This isn't what we expected. And so the great detective takes us back, says, look at the clues. And with hindsight, we realize we, we, we should have seen this all along. So let's do that. Let's remember the clues. We might, for example, remember that this church is in the city of Ephesus. And Acts chapter 19, where the church began, it tells us what a, a wealthy city this is. It's full of tourists. It's full of people buying and selling silver. It's a very wealthy place. Or we might remember 2 verse 9, the women uh, that Rika mentioned earlier, they were adorning themselves with gold and pearl and expensive clothes. This church has a bling problem. Or 3 verse 3, the elders must not be lovers of money. Why would he say that unless there was a problem? Or 3 verse 8, the deacons must not be pursuing dishonest gain. Why would he say that? And then remember the chapter on widows, the poor widows not being taken care of by their families even though they had the means to do so. The younger widows sponging off the church for support and spending their money on an idle lifestyle. And then there was the issue at the beginning of chapter 6, of, uh, for, uh, at the end of chapter 5, full-time paid elders not being paid properly despite the wealth of the church. And so I think if we'd rung Paul up and said to him, okay, Paul, we've got your letter. I've got your letter, but I'm a bit pushed for time. Can you just sum up the problem in Ephesus in a single word? I think Paul, as quick as a flash, would say... It's money. That's the problem in that church. Money, materialism, and greed. That's the reason that this church is going off the rails, because that is the particular trap the enemy has set. Well, in that case, let's have a look at it and see what we can learn uh, from this. And you'll see on the sheet there's two headings. The teachers and their trap. The teachers and the trap. So come back then to verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. Now when Paul says, if anyone teaches false doctrines, he's not saying, keep an eye out, Timothy, just in case anyone who fits this description should one day come to your church. And by the way, they very handily have cloven horns and fork tails, and t-shirts with false teacher written on them. No, these people are already in the church. In fact, they're probably the elders, some of the elders, because in Paul's farewell speech in Acts 20, he warns them that even from your own men will arise to distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And remember that they're not easy to tell. And this is why Paul now exposes them, so Timothy and the church will be able to identify them. As the letter is read out loud, there'll be people sitting there whose ears will be burning because this is an exposure. So he does this by describing first their teaching, secondly the results of that teaching, and third the worldview on which the teaching is based. So let's drill down now to look at these things. Firstly, the teaching. Paul says two things about their teaching. He says it's wrong 
and it's empty. It's wrong because, verse 3, it does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. Now, postmodernism has taught our culture to be suspicious of anybody who says this is right and this is wrong. But Paul has not the slightest hesitation in calling these people out as wrong. And that is because, of course, he's measuring it not against his own opinion, but against this standard of truth that comes from outside human culture. What is that standard? Well, look at verse 3. He calls it the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ. And literally, the teaching that accords to godliness. That's important. It's not godly teaching. It's the teaching that accords to godliness. Because you may remember, as we were reminded earlier from that very helpful discussion, that godliness in 1 Timothy is not so much our moral behavior, but it is the gospel truth and its implications for human life. It is what God wants all people to know in order to be saved. So the top level of truth against which all other truth claims are measured is godliness, the gospel, the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is the one big truth that makes sense of all the other truths. And that's why Paul is so against these false teachers. It's not that he is upset that they are eroding his authority in the church or that he can't cope with somebody having a difference of opinion from him. He is against these people because they are against the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth that saves. But notice that this false teaching is not only wrong, it is also empty. In verse 4, Paul characterizes the false teacher in exactly the same way he did in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he said their teaching was all about complex genealogies and clever myths. In other words, they are interested in things that they know, but other people don't know. Now, in verse 4, he says a similar thing. He says they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. And then, as we've seen, he comes back to this in chapter uh, 6, verse 20, right at the end of the book. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. So their teaching notice is based on knowledge. This is what they're about. This is their currency. This is their power. If you'd met these people, you probably would have been impressed with what they know. They know things that you don't know. And if you join them, then you will know things that other people don't know. That's how these things spread. This is what the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon is really offering you when they knock on their door. They have knowledge that you don't know, and if you join them, you'll have knowledge that other people don't know. But look at Paul's devastating summary of this knowledge at the start of verse 4. He says, such a person is conceited, literally puffed up, and understands nothing. It's a very unflattering, almost a comical picture. The false teacher is, is puffed up with their knowledge. They're full of knowledge, like this kind of inflated balloon. They know all sorts of bits and pieces. You know, Remember the genealogies of the Old Testament? They've learned them off by heart. They could tell you who was related to whom and who begat whom all the way through the Bible. They're full of knowledge. 
But Paul says, verse 4, they know nothing. Their knowledge is actually of no relevance at all. And this is God's verdict on them. So how is that possible? How is it possible to be so full of knowledge and yet know nothing at the same time? Well, it's because they have rejected the big knowledge. They've rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they don't know the one thing that unites all the little things. And if you don't know that Jesus Christ is Lord, then nothing you do know can actually make sense. It's a little bit like the ant climbing up the wall of the elephant's foot. The ant has all sorts of wonderful knowledge about what it can see in front of it. And those things are true to a certain extent. But it doesn't know it's on an elephant's foot. And so it really knows nothing at all. None of the knowledge it has is real knowledge. I think this is significant for us, isn't it? If you're a student listening to this, and in the week ahead, if your professors are not on strike, you may be listening to a very clever professor who is sneering at the Bible. I heard some of our students talk about such an occasion. Believe it or not, our clever professors sneering at the Bible. But Paul would say, well, they know nothing in the end. Yeah, of course they know things, but they don't really know anything because they're like the ant climbing up the foot of the elephant. They don't have the big knowledge that, know, that ties it all together. Whereas if you were taught to some of our three, four, and five-year-olds in Grub Group, they do have that knowledge because they know the big truth, the truth that matters, that Jesus Christ is Lord. It also make, may make you think about what knowledge you want to acquire. We have a lot of knowledge, don't we? We have this device in our pocket that connects us to Google and therefore links us to billions and billions of pieces of knowledge. We are the most knowledge-rich people in the universe, aren't we? But if you can't connect that to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, none of that is worth knowing. Well, that's their teaching. Let's look at the results. The results are horrible. Have a look at verse 4 again. Envy, strife. Malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction. This is what this church is like. In the absence of the big uniting truth of the gospel, now everybody is competing for their truth, for their view, for their opinion. And the leaders are gathering little factions around themselves. And people are abusing each other. And there are accusations and suspicions flying around. Who's right? Who's wrong? Why is this the case? Why does that teaching result in this breakdown of relationships? All this stress and trouble. Well, look at what he says. He says it's because their minds have been corrupt and they've been robbed of the truth. Now, I'll just pause there and mention two, two things, two implications here. See, what could have avoided this? What could have kept the church healthy? After all, in any Christian church, people are people. People are sinful. And people in any Christian church can actually have difference of opinions, believe it or not. There will be differences of opinions. What is it that can keep the church from breaking down like this? Well, one option is the brilliant, charismatic leadership of the pastors. 
That's a very dangerous thing, though, isn't it? Think about it. If the thing that is uniting people is the brilliant, charismatic leadership, or maybe the fear of being wrong, those are kind of cult-like characteristics. Now, what keeps a church healthy is the healthy teaching. So if these people have been robbed of the truth, and this causes the breakdown in the church, then what is the thing that is going to heal that? It is by feeding truth to the church. So you think of it like this. Think of the church as, a, as an engine. An engine is full of energy, isn't it? Just like a church is full of energy. People having their different opinions, knowing different things, different backgrounds, different characters, personalities. It's an incredibly complex thing. What can keep this complex engine running smoothly? Well, oil. Inject oil in the pistons. And the gospel, the healthy teaching, is the oil that keeps the pistons moving graciously and harmoniously. That is the one big thing we all agree around. And it's significant to notice, isn't it, that when the teaching moves away from the words of Jesus, what are the quarrels about? They're about words. Quarrels and controversies about words. Take the gospel oil away, and there's just friction, and the engine overheats, and the church is in meltdown. What a horrible place this is to be. And it's another reminder, isn't it, of the vital importance of sound teaching delivered to the church by those whose job it is to do so. The second thing I want to pull out is to notice the importance of the mind in all of this. Notice Paul says their minds have become corrupt. Now you might think that given the problem of the false teachers was this craving for knowledge, that it would lead to a kind of anti-knowledge spirituality, as if knowledge is the problem... Therefore, we need to be suspicious of knowledge. We need to be suspicious of the mind. And some Christians go down that track. Be suspicious of knowledge and thinking. Actually, it's all about how you feel. But no, the problem is they had a corrupt mind because they had not submitted their minds to the Lord Jesus. And the cure for this is not to shun the mind, but to fill the mind with gospel truth. To actually submit the mind to the gospel. Paul wants this church, he wants Christians to be thinking people. And this is why for many years now, I've been telling our students when they start out at university, sometimes in the first student lunch or the first real food talk, I say to the students, you've come up to university to engage your brains for three years. Some of them are studying maths, engineering, music, fine art, medicine, very deep tough subjects, they're going to have to work very hard, engage their brains. Sorry if this is news to you and you're in your sort of final year, you know, but that's what I say. But what we're studying is God. And you don't get bigger than that, do you? The God who invented engineering, medicine, maths, music. And so you've come to university to engage your brains, but in church, in growth groups, in grub groups, as we open the Bible, we're going to engage our minds because there is nothing more complex or bigger or deeper than God. This does not mean that Christians must be academics. It means that we need to think. We need to be thinking people. We need to engage our minds and submit everything we think about 
under the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're teaching, they're results. But how do we end up with money? Well, thirdly, their worldview. Come back to verse 5 with me. Men of corrupt mind, who have been robbed of the truth, and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, what is he actually saying here? Well, at first glance, verse 5 looks like he may be warning us against a, a very f- quite familiar kind of way of thinking in our world right now. The idea that you can use the Christian religion to get rich. So this is sometimes known as health, wealth, and prosperity teaching, which says if you follow Jesus, you can get rich, you can get wealthy. And this is huge in some parts of the world. It's an unhealthy mixture of half-truths. It claims for the believer now what the Bible actually promises in the next world, and it's very destructive. But I don't think that is quite the problem here. I think that actually there's a worse problem here. The Greek expression translated, think godliness is a means to financial gain, is literally, they think gain is the godliness. They think that gain is the religion. That is not so much that they think Christianity is a means to gain. They think Christianity is about gain. There's a difference between the two, isn't there? In other words, wealth and money and the good life is their religion. The accumulation of things and the good life is everything to them. It is their worldview. This is all they have. Their worldview is of this world. Now, as I said before, I think this is a surprise until you think about it. One reason it's a surprise is that it doesn't fit doesn't seem to fit with that business in chapter 4, 1 to 5, where the false teachers are denying the goodness of this creation. And now we see that actually these deniers of the good life are actually quite partial to the good life in themselves. Now, what that means is that their teaching is self-contradictory and inconsistent. It's not Paul who's being inconsistent, it's their teaching that is inconsistent. And if you think about it, isn't that what you would expect of people with damaged consciences? Isn't this why Paul calls them hypocrites in chapter 4, verse 2? It's inconsistent. They are denying people the good life, but they're rather partial to it themselves. And if you look at the history of monasticism in this country, for example, you'll see that contradiction. Medieval monasticism was, on the surface, a denial of the good life. Poverty, chastity. We're going to be poor. We're going to live in this kind of poor. What did Henry VIII discover when he raided the monasteries? Half the nation's wealth. Lots of very fat friars. Dens of sexual abuse and debauchery. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not having a go at monasticism. Or maybe I am. But what I'm saying is there is this inconsistency because people very rarely follow through on self-denial, truly, you need the Holy Spirit to do that. So these false teachers, they say they keep away from the good life, but actually they're very partial to it themselves. Another reason it is it's a surprise is because at times these false teachers sound a little bit like the Pharisees of the, the Gospels who Jesus came across. They're interested in the Old Testament law. They've got a little element of kind of works righteousness about them. 
And while the Pharisees had many faults, we don't typically think of them as people who were in it for the money. But there's a telling little moment in Luke 16, just after Jesus has declared that you can only serve one master, you can't serve both God and money, you'll hate one and love the other. There's a very telling little moment where Luke almost tells us in passing, and I've put this at the, back, at the bottom of the sheet, he says the Pharisees who loved money heard this and were sneering at Jesus. It's a revelation, isn't it? These Pharisees, that was their religion. They loved money. But I think above all, it makes sense because of what Paul has already said about the false teachers. See, there is a chain reaction here, isn't there? The false teachers had rejected the gospel. They've been robbed of the truth of the lordship of Jesus. And therefore, their way of looking at the world has been corrupted. They cannot see the cross of Jesus and his self-giving generosity. They cannot see the resurrection of Jesus and how our treasure is in the next world. They cannot see him returning to judge the living and the dead and the promise of the world to come. And if you reject all of that, then what do you have left? You only have this world, don't you? As one commentator puts it, they have simply become men of the world. They have sold their birthright, like Esau, for a bowl of stew. But here's the question. Why is Paul telling Timothy this? Why is he majoring on these people and their teaching so much in the letter? Well, three reasons. Firstly, he wants Timothy and the church family to recognize them. He wants them to recognize them by their teaching and their character. It's a little bit like in sending the letter, Paul has stuck a wanted poster on the wall of the church, notice board, with one of those kind of identikit pictures of the false teacher. This is who you're looking for. This is what they look like. Because remember, they do not look like walls. They are hard to spot. He wants them to recognize them. Secondly, by exposing the deadliness of their teaching, Paul is going to hold up the alternative, which we'll see in a moment, by way of contrast. But thirdly, and most importantly, Paul is actually warning Timothy and the church, and therefore us, not to be taken in. And this brings us to the trap in 6 to 10. Firstly then, in 6 to 8, he gives us the positive contrast. Look at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Notice he doesn't simply contradict them by saying that it's ridiculous to think that godliness can lead to gain. He says, no, godliness is all about gain, but not the kind of gain they're thinking of. That is, godliness and the gospel is the gain, the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus on the cross, reconciliation with God, the perfect promise of the new creation, that is gain. That is true wealth, true riches. If you have your future destiny, if you've been given the keys to the kingdom, you are fabulously wealthy, eternally wealthy. But if you have hope for eternity, you also have something now, which is contentment with whatever material things you have. So, Verse 7 to 8, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, 
we'll be content with that. Now, verse 7 is a famous saying of Proverbs, something that was quoted by the secular philosophers of Paul's day. But look at it. It's not just an empty, empty cliche. This is an important part of the Christian worldview. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Think of a baby comes into the world naked. Think of somebody in a coffin. Human life is to be lived with eternity in view. We come into this world for a short time. We're born naked. We die naked. There is no material thing we can gain in this world that will add to us, that will make a difference in the next. At the end, we will stand on a level playing field before God, and on one side might be the, the, the poorest beggar from the street, and on the other side might be Jeff Bezos, and we will all look the same. Because everything in life was borrowed, and it's all going to be handed on in the end. It will all return to dust in the end. And Paul is saying, if that's the case, then the accumulation of stuff cannot be the right way to live, can it? We know intuitively, don't we, when they dig up those Saxon warriors or the Egyptian kings and they see all the wealth buried with it, we know intuitively, don't we, that's ridiculous. I was reading about Monty Don burying his dog, his beloved dog, the other day, and he buried him with 50 tennis balls and a massive bowl of dog food. And it's a, it's a lovely sort of sentimental picture. Obviously, it was good for Monty and made him feel better, but we know that the dog's not going to be playing tennis balls, not those tennis balls anyway. But that's another question about what, where the dog will be in the new creation. <laughs> so once you've exhausted all the other things to discuss from this sermon, you can go on to... Uh, Dogs in the new creation. But we know, it's, we know it's wrong, don't we? We know that doesn't make sense. That the accumulation of stuff in this world cannot make the slightest difference in the next world. The very facts of birth and death teach you that this is the wrong philosophy of life. It's the wrong game plan. Unless, of course, you're an atheist. If you're an atheist, then this is the right way for you to live. It's the only way to live. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in eternity, then what are you doing here on a sunny day? You should be outside living your life. It's the only way that makes sense if you're an atheist. Please go and, li and live your life. Accumulate 50 tennis balls or whatever the equivalent is for you because that's all you're getting in this life. But if you believe in eternity, if you believe in God then the only philosophy of life that makes sense is to live for what lasts in the new creation and so pursue godliness. And in the meantime, we are creatures, and so food, clothing, those are what we need. If you have those things, you'll be content. And yet it's so hard to believe this. It's so easy to believe that a little bit more and a little bit more is what I need, and then I'll be happy. And yet how easily we fall for this lie, as Paul now explains in 9 and 10. See, there are two groups of people Paul will address in this chapter. Next week, he's going to talk about those who are rich, and he's got a clear word for them. They are to give away their money. One very important way of handling money for the Christian who has it is giving it away for the work of the gospel. And we've got to do that because nobody else will. 
and because it shows that we have understood that the Christian life is not about possessions, but that's for next week. Here, he is addressing those who want to be rich. And I guess as we go through this chapter, we've all got to decide, you know, which, which group are we in? But here is it, he's addressing those who want to be rich. And notice that it's not the church accounts that Paul is concerned with here, but it's their salvation. Verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and to many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. It begins with what seems like an innocent, reasonable desire. Because nobody really speaks crassly, do they, about wanting to get rich. It's much more likely that we'll talk about wanting to get established, about finding some financial security, about needing to pay the mortgage and put the children through university and save up for retirement and a rainy day. Nothing inherently wicked about any of those things. But Paul is describing a sequence of dangers here where one thing leads to another. Where that desire for financial security leads to other desires, other anxieties. It leads to us seeing the world differently to what we did before. And that goal of being financially secure replaces good desires with new desires which is why you often find the most wealthy people are the most anxious and miserable. Anxiety for what you want becomes anxiety to protect what you have. Now we know this, don't we? And yet, you see so many Christians fall for this. Many of us hear this teaching and we smile and nod as if it cannot possibly happen to us. Because we believe that somehow we can pull it off. We can somehow balance the two. We can serve God and money. And then the promotion comes, which takes them away from church and family a little bit. And soon they're on the treadmill of the new job, and church and ministry has taken a back seat. Soon the family is struggling, and things are falling apart. Life is now full of anxieties that you didn't know you had before. Some foolish decisions were made. There's no escape. There's no way back. And before you know it, you've plunged into ruin. This is what Jesus says in the parable of the sower, Mark 4. He says, Still others like seed sown among the thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Exactly the same thing. Now, why is this such a trap for us? Verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice that there is nothing evil about money. It's the love of money that is the problem. And notice that the love of money is the root of of all sorts of sins. Not every sin, all sorts of sins. Why the root? Because he's talking about the heart. Something you can't see. The hidden motivation behind our choices. In the cartoons, the dollar sign flashes up, doesn't it, in the eyes. But you don't see that. It's hidden. It's in the heart. But it's the love of money that is the problem. And that's what sets us off on this downward spiral to total spiritual destruction because remember why Paul is telling us this 
So we'll spot the false teachers and their teaching. So we'll see the beautiful contrast of contentment. But most of all, because we are not nearly frightened enough. Paul knows how easily we'll be tempted. Notice in those two words, temptation and trap. Those are, in Paul's language, in the New Testament, those are Satan words. And Paul knows that Satan has many baits for many different people. Some people it's power, some people it's religion, some people it's sex. But in this church, in Ephesus, it's money. This is the bait that the devil is setting. And so why has he written this letter? Because we are not nearly frightened enough. We don't realize how powerful the love of money is. We don't realize how easily we can go down those steps and being taken in by the devil's trap, how spiritually dangerous it is. This is why he's written it. Do you know how Eskimos sometimes hunt for wolves? This is going to make you cringe, this uh, illustration. (laughs) Not because it's cheesy, it's just going to make you cringe. The hunter gets a very sharp knife and he coats the blade in blood and allows it to freeze. And he gets another layer of blood and he coats the knife in that and allows it to freeze. Then another layer. So eventually this very, very sharp knife is is covered and hidden in frozen blood. And then he attaches the knife into the snow, sticking upright. So all you can see is this little bit of blood. And a wolf comes along and smells the blood and starts licking the blade, tastes the blood. And as the wolf begins to lick the blade faster and more vigorously, lapping the blade with his tongue, licks it harder and harder, feverishly craving the blood, his great desire for the blood does not make him notice the sharp sting of pain of his own tongue in the frozen Arctic night, nor his insatiable appetite makes him aware of the moment when he starts drinking his own warm blood. And his appetite craves more and more and more until in the morning the Eskimo finds him dead in the snow. Isn't that exactly what Paul is describing in verse 10? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Well, let me conclude by saying this. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. We've thought about the enemy. We're not nearly frightened enough. we thought about false teaching, robbing us of the knowledge of the truth and how that ruins churches. Thought about the need for the gospel oil to keep the engine moving. And we thought about the worldview that results when the gospel is removed. And we thought about the way our enemy uses money as the bait. And so in just a few short sentences, Paul has actually given us a huge warning and a huge hope. The warning not to go down this path that causes such misery. But huge hope that we can live life of real contentment now. And fabulous, fabulous wealth in the new creation. But in the end, it all boils down to this. Which kingdom 
Which kingdom? Which kingdom are you going to live for? Which kingdom do you really believe in? Which kingdom are you going to invest in? Which master are you going to serve? Nothing reveals the answer to that question more than your attitude to money. But the big question is, which kingdom are you going to choose this morning? So I think Paul would say, if you live for this world, you're going to end up with neither. If you live for God's kingdom, you'll get everything. Eternity and contentment now. Which kingdom are you going to live for? Well, why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would forgive us for when our minds wander from the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and we become prey to the enemy's empty promises. We pray that you might keep the oil of the gospel flowing in our church to produce joy, patience, sacrificial generosity, contentment and unity around the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you'd help each of us to remember that if we reject the gospel to grasp the world, we lose everything. But if we pursue Jesus, we gain everything. We pray this for his sake. Amen.